Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your Bible. We thank you uh, that you speak to us through it. Uh, we thank you that uh, in the Bible we find the very words of truth, of life, of in fact eternal life. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to be those people who hungrily uh, seek to know uh, your word and seek to know you. And we do pray uh, for help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so probably from the kids' talk, you've got the gist. I'm going to be dealing with uh, the Magi, uh, the, the wise men. Uh, we can probably, as I said, thank these blokes for the whole concept of gift-giving, I think, at Christmas. Um, they brought the gifts to Jesus. Uh, some of us are counting down till tomorrow morning where we get to open up our presents and look forward to what we're going to receive. And deep down we're thinking, yes... I love those wise men, um, but in our home we have at least one person stressing out about whether everyone will like their gifts and whether they bought the right gift for each person and in fact even uh, this morning uh, she got up early, there's a clue as to who the person is, uh, and was wondering whether she should rush off to the shop and buy one more gift because the person has a birthday on the 25th and Christmas Day and she's calculating exactly what they might expect to make sure they're not disappointed. Well, for those sorts of people in our congregation, I'm sure you're thinking, wise men, are they really wise? Why do they bring up, so, why do they bring up this tradition? It's, it's slavery. Well, for us, we're not really interested this morning in anyone's opinion about the wise men, really. What we're interested in is what the Bible says, aren't we? And we want to look at what the Bible says about them. And we're going to learn along the way a bit about the Jewish leaders. We're going to learn a little bit about Herod. Uh, but the big lesson comes from uh, these wise men. And the first thing we learn is that knowledge alone is not enough. And we pick this up from the scribes and the chief priests. Now these guys were really expert consultants to Herod, weren't they? Herod heard news of a king and instantly he felt he needed consultants, like most governments do. Uh, they bring the consultants in for critical information. Uh, and we see this in verses 3 and verse 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, the Jewish leaders were really strange consultants to be calling anyway because technically they were the enemies of Rome, weren't they? Uh, they were not the guys who sat down and said, I'm so happy, Herod's my boss. Um, uh, but who were these chief priests that they decided to call in? Well, well, the chief priests and the scribes, the scribes firstly, well, they were the real experts. They were the guys who did real study. Uh, they were often experts hired out to different factional groups uh, in Jewish society. So the Pharisees had their scribes and the chief priests had their scribes. So these guys were the real studiers and they often were advisors to the guys who had factional control in uh, Israel. These guys were also what we would call human typewriters or human photocopiers. So, so what they would do is they would have a copy of the law the Old Testament and they would handwrite it and make many copies. They would make specific copies for one person who would pay them to do it or they would make other copies for themselves and for the temple and for people who they felt uh, would read it and use it. 
they spent a lot of time making sure the law was preserved intact. They made sure a lot of time that they interpreted the law for people. And so they would meet for weekly Bible studies. And their weekly Bible studies would throw up theoretical situations. And then they'd throw up this theoretical problem and then they'd sit down and go and hunt down passages of the law to try and sort out exactly what the law says about this situation. So, for instance, they might say, you know, Levi down the road moved his fence three metres. Is that right or not? What did the law say about it? And they'd all say, oh, Levi's naughty, he should move his fence back. And so that, that was a sort of discussion they had. And because they had all these discussions, often when two people had a real fight, Two guys are having a real fight over something, they would actually go to these guys and say, listen, can you sort us out? Uh, this is what this person did to me, is he allowed to do that or does the law say he's not to do that and how does the law expect us to punish him? A and so they were constantly looking at the law uh, to see how it could be used in daily life. But they were also interested in the law and how it should be used in worship, in public worship. They studied not just public worship, but private worship. So things like fasting. Uh, how often should you fast? How should you fast? When should you fast? Uh, they looked at tithing. What should you tithe? Should you just tithe actual cash that comes into your pocket? Or should you tithe the fact that a bunch of mint just happened to grow into the corner of your backyard and you decided to use it for your cooking? Did you throw every single leaf into the last dish you cooked or did you pick out one out of the ten and keep it and bring it to the temple? Uh, they looked at prayer and what sort of prayer should be prayed at what time. They focused mainly for the prayers of blessing, those prayers that you would pray for the people that they would be blessed and that they would do well. And then they focused on cleanliness as well, didn't they? Uh, for instance, they really paid attention to lepers, uh, people who had diseases who were not allowed uh, to come into the temple. But, but every bit of the law was their concern. Every bit of the Bible was their interest to make sure that they knew it and they could explain it and they could advise their factional groups on how the law related to different parts of life. So often these guys really were the lecturers in the Bible colleges. These guys were the lawyers in, in everyday Jewish society. Some of them were even judges. Uh, they were important people. They knew heaps, didn't they? And then the chief priests, well, well, they were supposed to come from that tribe of Levi, weren't they? And if they weren't coming from the tribe of Levi, they were often descendants of Zadok. And if they were either from one of those groups of families, they could be a chief priest. And their main job was the upkeep of the temple to make sure that the temple was prepared for sacrifices and sacrifices were ready to be offered up to God. They also were very interested in the prayers, not as much as the scribes in terms of working out what the prayers should be from the Bible, but they actually prayed on behalf of the people. They were the mediator, weren't they, between man and God. And then they worried about the music as well, and so they made sure there was appropriate music and there was singing of songs uh, in the temple. They collected the tithes that were calculated, they made sure they were spent appropriately, and then they inspected clean, uh, cleanliness. So for instance, a leper was healed, they were the ones who checked the leper out and said, yep, he's healed, he's welcome back into the... These guys were serious, interested guys in making sure 
the Bible was practiced, not just in everyday life, but in worship. Herod was their governor or their king. He was a crook, really. And he should have really just left the priesthood alone. They should have just been family members of Levi or family members of Zadok. But instead, he couldn't help himself, really. He had to butt in, and he made sure he got people into the priesthood that really were his allies. They would act for him. He was not that interested in someone mediating between man and God. He was more interested in someone who would tell the people what he wanted them to know. And so the priests usually came from a group called the Sadducees. And these Sadducees, uh, they, they were the political elite, weren't they? Um, they? They came from the suburbs where they were all educated and they all had more money than the rest. They had connections with government. They knew how to get things done uh, without you really wanting to know how the things got done. These guys somehow thought they could be friends with the Jews and somehow be friends with the government as well. It was like a win-win strategy. For them, they had enough Bible uh, to be Jewish and they had enough clout to make sure they could move government. And so these guys got the job. And, you know, it's only later that James comes along and he writes, doesn't he? He says, don't you get it? That, that friendship with the world is actually war or enmity with God. Uh, these guys didn't get that. Um, and, and here they are, this corrupt group with their own selected specialists or consultants are brought in and Herod uh, calls them in. He knows his title is king of Judea. And then someone tells him a king of the Jews is being born and he's sitting down and he's saying, hang on a minute, uh, this is not good. I really need to get some more information. I need experts who will advise me. Who, who would answer this question for me? Who would be prompt? Who would know exactly where this king would come from? And he knows exactly who to call. We're told he called the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And their answer was prompt. It was efficient. It was effective. Look at verses 5 and verse 6. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, they didn't have to look up Wikipedia. They, they didn't really have to call a royal commission to make sure there was an extensive study uh, before they gave their answer. They didn't have to look up concordances. Uh, this was on the tip of their tongue, wasn't it? It was like their memory verse. They were hungry. They really wanted a king. They wanted someone to come and give them freedom from Rome. And, and this was the topic that obsessed them, really. Because when was God going to send their king who would not only set up their country and their own land but actually defeat all the nations around and extend uh, God's kingdom to all the world? Well, they knew the king would come from Bethlehem. They knew Micah's prophecy. They, they knew Micah's prophecy probably by heart. And they didn't just know the suburb or the town Bethlehem, I'm sure they knew the rest of Micah's prophecy as you heard it read uh, this morning by Ali. 
Look at verse 2 if you've got Micah chapter 5 handy. Uh, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. You see, they, they knew this king was from everlasting, was divine. That they knew he was God. Uh, they knew this king would care for his people. They, they knew this king would have a kingdom that would extend well past Israel, well past Jerusalem, well past all the land that David ever, ever occupied. Uh, and then this massive bonus, this king would be their peace. He, he would not bring peace, he would be their peace. Look at verses 3 onwards from Micah again, chapter 5. Therefore he shall give them up, meaning for a time being Israel will be given up, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. They knew all this. They had a bucket load of knowledge. They had so much. But nowhere do we find in Matthew or Luke or Mark that these guys actually went to Bethlehem. They just stayed in Jerusalem. The, the Magi came and asked, where is this king to be born? They tell him he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but they stay in Jerusalem. You see, they, they couldn't accept that, that this king is going to be born without them being told first. They, they were the experts, weren't they? Uh, God's duty-bound in their minds to reveal any knowledge of this king to them and them alone. And to go to Gentiles first, people from Iran or further, and to tell them by a star, as opposed to these very clear prophecies in the Bible, well, this doesn't make sense, does it? But it's got to come to them. There's no way God could work without them. God would only work with them because he's obligated to them. These guys have been so holy, so special. They've given their whole lives to studying the Bible. You see, because they were the experts, no one could do anything. Even God couldn't do anything without them. That, that's pride, isn't it? It's self-righteousness. And it blinds them. It blinds them from the truth. Uh, knowledge alone is uh, not good enough. And I've got to ask you this morning, what's your knowledge doing for you? I mean, you're in a church, I speak to your minister at least once a month, and he's always reading something that I've never read. He's always studying a topic that I've never even thought of studying. He's always urging me on to read something more, and I suspect you're being fed better than I'm learning in the study. But what's your knowledge doing for you? Is it puffing you up? Um, is it making you feel like you just know so much? Or are you humbly serving God? Are you actually uh, discipling someone? 
are you using uh, your knowledge for the glory of God? Well, well, the second thing we learn from the text is wealth and power do not guarantee security. And we get this from Herod, don't we? Um, Herod, he's officially the king of Judea. He's not the real king. He's really just a puppet king. He's a puppet king for the Roman emperor. He gets told what to do and then he goes off and does it. He doesn't have to think a lot. But, but he worked hard to get the job. Uh, history records from Josephus and some of the Roman historians tell us he worked very hard not only to get the job but to keep the job. Uh, he was not a Jew and to make sure he didn't have too many Jewish rivals he pretended to be a Jewish sympathizer at the least. He, he was a strategist really, he was a master at strategy, he was politically very cunning and he was ruthless really as a military ruler. Uh, his father was a crook, which sort of tells you that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it? He, he manipulated, this father manipulated the previous king and made sure the two sons, Herod and his brother, were governors. Uh, Herod was governor of Galilee in 47 BC, uh, we have in the history records. And he, he was a great tax collector, we're told, and he brutally kept the peace. And so the Romans loved him, and even the people thought he wasn't too bad because it was really quite peaceful. But, but Rome was not peaceful and usually when a society is getting towards the end of its, uh, if you like, uh, peak, what usually happens is that the rulers change over and over again and we've seen that happen for us too, haven't we? Uh, and what happened was Julius Caesar was king in 44 BC and he was murdered by Brutus and by Cassius and then Brutus and Cassius thought that they'd take over the empire and they thought, hang on a minute, there's Mark Antony in the corner, let's go and attack him and get rid of him and we'll have no more threats uh, to our leadership. But Mark Antony wins and Brutus and uh, Cassius, they commit suicide. Well, for, for Herod this is a problem because Herod's backed the wrong team each time and he finds himself now a governor with a new king, Mark Antony, and he's been backing against uh, Mark Antony all along and he somehow got to find a way to make sure that he wins Mark Antony's favour and keeps the job as governor or gets promoted if possible. Well, at the same time, uh, around him, miraculously and mysteriously, uh, it just seems like all his rivals die or get murdered. And uh, so when it's time to look for a king of Judea, there's only one job applicant. It's Herod. And he goes up there and he promises loyalty and he gets the job. So in 37 AD he gets the job as king of Judea. From 37 to 31 BC he decides he's going to get rid of all his uh, opposition. The, the uh, Jewish family that helped secure some use of the temple, they get totally wiped out. And then he looks at the five wealthiest families in the suburb and he says, right, I've got to knock them out as well and take all their wealth. So now he's powerful and he's wealthy, isn't he? And then he says, well, my brother's still there and he was a governor. Well, let me go and kill him. So he's on the way to kill his brother, but his brother dies uh, and beats him to it. Uh, Herod, though, thinks that's the end of his killing spree and he thinks now I'll have peace. But he's married. He's married quite a few women. He's, the records say it's at least ten women. And, and the one woman he decides to sort of get offside with is the woman who got him most power. The woman that has the family line that brought him the kingship. 
And you can imagine breakfast. She's saying, you'd have nothing without me. And he's saying, well, hang on a minute. It's actually me. I looked at myself this, mirror, this morning in the mirror and I'm sure I'm king because of who I am. And she's saying, you're nothing. And so he goes up and thinks about, what should I do? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll kill her mother first. And you always go for the mother-in-law, don't you? And um, there are many jokes in that one, I know, but I, I'm restraining myself this morning. And, um, but he kills his, um, his mother-in-law. Then he kills his wife. And then all the sons she's born, he kills them as well to make sure they're not a threat either. You're getting a feel for Herod, aren't you? You're getting a feel for what kind of bloke he is. You, you get offside with this bloke and it's not going to be good. He doesn't like competitors. And the killing in Rome is continuing as well because Rome's quite unstable. Mark Anthony gets killed off and a new king comes and once again Herod has to run up there and offer gifts and offer his loyal service and make sure that he's saying to them, I'm going to be a good king for you. And he's constantly working to make sure he's got no competitors below and he's got the guys in, uh, above him happy with him as well. Well, with all that effort to be liked, Herod's not liked. By now, he's killed so many people, none of the Jews even like him. If he went to a news poll, he'd be losing the polls. I don't know if he'd lose 30 in a row, but, but he's, he's losing them. He, he's not doing well. He can't take a trick. He's a cunning guy. He's a guy who's uh, capable. He, he's a guy who is powerful. He's a guy who's wealthy, but he's a guy that is totally insecure. He's sitting in his corner, frightened of every shadow. Matthew, he, he records this verse that we read of earlier. Let me read uh, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. You see, these wise men come to Jerusalem and they start poking around and asking questions about this king. Uh, Herod's on the pulse, isn't he? He knows who comes in and he knows who goes out. He's got people watching everybody and making sure the gossip is heard and reported to him very quickly. Look at verse 2. The Magi are asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You see, they don't come to Herod. They go and ask everybody in Jerusalem. But the news gets to Herod and Herod makes sure he gets to them. Because the questions trouble him. Literally, he's churning inside. He's greatly troubled. He's disturbed. He's unsettled. Some commentators have gone as far as to say he's intimidated. He's agitated. And, and you know the feeling, don't you? The last time you stayed up all night, you couldn't sleep because of something that had really stressed you. That, that's what he's going through. He knows it's a serious matter. Uh, these guys have come from the East. They've had a supernatural revelation. They've had stars move out of orbit. And they've decided to follow these stars. And these foreigners who have nothing to do with Jerusalem have come and they announced that they're going to come and look for a king that is greatly anticipated and expected by all Jews. 
These foreigners didn't come to get rid of a competitor. They didn't come from a faraway country thinking, hang on a minute, this king is going to extend his borders well past Jerusalem and he's going to one day come and take over Iran. No, no. They, they came to worship him, we're told. And we came to worship him even when he was just a baby. They didn't wait to see if he lived and became strong. They came when he was a baby. This was big news to Herod, wasn't it? All this political acumen is now being brought together. His temper starting to warm up if not boil. A and he knows the scribes can tell him exactly what's in the Bible. He even knows the Bible is accurate for every prophecy. A and so he calls them and he says to the theologians, give me guidance from the Bible. Amazing question. And they come, and he knows they're so excited about a king, they'll tell him everything. Their expectation is fever pitch. You have it in not just the Bible records, you have it in the records of the Jews, of how much they were looking forward to the king. It's like the kids looking forward to tomorrow, isn't it? Well, Herod had so much. He had wealth. He had power. He had knowledge. He had the gossips. He had his finger on the pulse. He knew everything that was happening in his jurisdiction. He had access to Bible teachers. He had access to theologians. Uh, with everything he had, he was still frightened. All his wealth, all his power was of absolutely no use at all. Instead of bowing to this king, instead of going down to Bethlehem and submitting himself to Jesus, uh, he sees Jesus as a threat. And he decides he's going to wage war against, not just Jesus, but against God. And if you want to get a feel for his insecurity, look at verses 7 and verses 8. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. It's fake interest, isn't it? It's not the real thing. All of Jerusalem knew he was fake. All of Jerusalem knew his real intent. They knew how insecure Herod would get if you mention another king. They knew how viciously he responds to every competitor. And it's no surprise that verse 3 tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled. You see, they had very good reason to be troubled. They had very good reason to be frightened because this man, when he got into a panic, made bad decisions. And we see that here, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Folks, this is what wealth and power will do for you. It gives you no security at all. Seeking wealth and power will only make you more and more insecure. They don't equate to the blessing of God. We sometimes think we've got a new car, well, that's God's blessing. We've got a new house, well, that's God's blessing. And in many ways they are. Everything is from God's hands. But that material wealth 
and power don't equate to the blessing of God. And can I ask you this morning, uh, where do you seek your security from? What, what will you seek most for your eternal security in 2018? Well, the wise men, they give us a good clue, don't they? And the wise men, they turn to Jesus uh, for eternal security and peace. Uh, and we, we see the first thing about the wise men is this one little word that's put right before the words wise men. It's this word, behold. Matthew deliberately puts that word in there. And he's deliberately emphasizing the appearance of Jesus' birth, isn't he? He's saying, keep an eye on these wise men. Focus on them. Think about them and pay attention to them. Uh, in fact, some people when they read these Gospels, they think, oh, these wise men, they get too much airtime. They're Gentiles, they followed stars, they weren't reading Bibles, they just turned up and uh, gave gifts. What's the big deal? I'd rather know how heavy the baby was. I'd rather know what color eyes the baby had or, you know, was it a quick birth, was it a long birth? Tell me something that really matters. Did the baby really cry? Um, or tell me something more about the baby. Well, Matthew says they're details that are not important right now. He says they don't hit the Richter scale. Uh, what you need to do is not be distracted. The main point here is that God miraculously revealed himself to Gentiles. And these Jews who had Jesus right under their nose didn't see him but these Gentiles had great revelation from God and their response well what a wonderful response that they sought after God that they hungrily chased after him they made a long journey from as far as Iran to come and look for this king you see God decided to bypass the Jews and especially reveal himself uh, to Gentiles and, and that's hope for us isn't it that's a signal straight away of what's coming. Verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, who are these wise men? You've got to ask. Uh, the, the words wise men literally is the word magi, isn't it? Or um, ma I could be pronounced differently, magi, I don't know. Uh, some think it's, uh, they were magicians. I, I don't think so. Uh, and most of the reading of the commentators tell us that they were most likely a priestly sect. And they were a genuine interested group in Persia or Iran or somewhere that far away who had their own religion and they believed in one God they believed that we owe a duty to God uh, they, they believed that you need to seek this God with all your heart uh, they believed that uh, work was an honorable thing uh, they believed that uh, stars were some things to be watched because God controlled the whole universe and that he would guide them through the stars. And somehow God revealed to them quite miraculously through the very things they were focusing on uh, 
through a bright star that just moved totally outside the norm. And somehow God revealed to them that this star, or perhaps in some other way, there's going to be a birth. He, he revealed to them that it's a sign there's going to be a birth. And this birth is not just going to be a birth of any old person, it's going to be a birth of a king. Uh, they even knew that the king was divine because they came to worship. You see, they came with conclusions because they came pre-prepared with gifts. And they brought the three gifts with them. It's quite amazing how much they knew. And we wonder sometimes, how did they get all this knowledge? Well, it was God. God revealed it to them. And, and we don't know how many there were, we don't know if there were three, we know there were three gifts. But, but here were these guys that came from the east, they come to Jerusalem, they arrive in Jerusalem because it makes sense, if he's a king he'll be in the capital city. So, so they're thinkers, aren't they? That they work through all the knowledge they receive from God and they act on it. And they come to Jerusalem, they ask questions and they find someone who tells them from the scriptures, he's in, Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. And so they say, okay, let's move to Bethlehem. Everything they're learning, they're taking in and acting on. Perhaps that's why we translate that word magi to be wise men. They're wise men. They ask questions, and they not only get answers, but they get an invitation to meet the king. And they know that this king is really just a puppet king, he's not the real king they're looking for. But they still show him respect. And he says, go to Bethlehem and find this king and come back so I can worship him. And they cooperate. They don't know it's fake interest. They just accept it. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. These men had less knowledge than the scribes and the chief priests, and yet they acted. These men had less wealth, less power, less connections than Herod, and yet they went to Bethlehem. They faithfully acted to the best of their knowledge and the best of their ability. You see these magi, they're not the norm, are they? They're not what normal people do. Normal people don't seek after God. They wouldn't even fit into Aussie society. Aussie society, we've got 61% saying no, we don't really want to know. Saying yes, sorry, we don't want to really listen to God. We're not really interested in what God thinks. They're hostile to the truth. If you actually give them the truth, they're going to turn and bite you. They're going to get pretty angry with you. Jesus says, you know, you shouldn't give everybody the truth because they'll behave the same way as wild pigs would behave with pearls. They, they won't appreciate it. And when you're trying to do them good, they'll turn around and attack you and devour you. But he says, in the same passage, he says, if you seek him, if you seek him, you'll find him. In Matthew 7 he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. You see, he's saying, don't be like wild pigs. 
Instead, be seekers. Be people who constantly are hungry and thirsty for knowing God, for knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Magi proved this true. Because look at verse 9 and the rest of verse 9. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. You see, they sought God, they started off on their way to Bethlehem, and lo and behold, the star turns up and takes them right over the place where Jesus is born. They sought God and they found God. They found God in the flesh. And look at what happens when seekers find Jesus. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They were overjoyed. It was excessive joy. And their joy led to worship and service. Look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense and myrrh. I think these guys were converted, don't you? These guys were Christians. They became Christians. They worshipped this divine king. They knew Micah's prophecy in fact, better than the scribes. But they knew that his goings are from of old, from everlasting. They submitted to this little baby, this newborn. But they knew that he's going to be great to the ends of the earth. And they know that he will be their peace. They, they voluntarily honoured him. They honoured him because they know he will shepherd his flock. He will care for his people. No matter what situation you're going through, they knew he would draw near and care and shepherd and watch over. Well, I guess I've got to close and just ask you a few questions. Do you worship Jesus? Do you seek him? with all your heart. How would you be submitting to Jesus in your life these days? How do you honour him? How do you serve him? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for this time of Christmas. We thank you because it gives us these wonderful opportunities to look at texts in the scripture that sometimes uh, we don't get to see and, and read and learn from all through the year. Uh, we thank you for the lovely songs that point us to your son. And we come to worship him and thank you for him uh, who died for sinners uh, like us. And so we come this morning to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.